This is episode 226 of the Land Stewardship Project's Ear to the Ground podcast. This episode is the third and final in a series titled Farming on Stolen Land. My name is Elizabeth McCarewitz and I work in the membership program of LSP. These three episodes were developed as a guide to exploring issues of native justice and equity in Minnesota's food system. If this is your first time tuning in, I recommend you return to the beginning of this mini-series, episode 224. In the first episode of this series, we heard from author Nora Murphy about what it means to her as a white person to be living in the Dakota homeland. After listening to Nora's story, I recommended that my listeners catch up on their Minnesota history with the episode Little War on the Prairie from This American Life. In the second episode of this series, Dakota activist Carly Badhart-Bull shared the meaning of truth-telling in her ancestors' homeland. Now, finally, we'll hear from Dakota writer and futurist, Waziatuin. While Waziatuin's vision of the future may seem radical to some, I would argue that drastic change is needed in this time of vast social inequity and climate craziness. Thanks so much for listening. I am Waziatuin, and I come from the place we call Pejihutazizik Abimokoche, or land where they dig for yellow medicine, and that's the Upper Sioux Reservation in southwestern Minnesota. I'm just going to ask the question that's the title of this book that you wrote in 2008. What does justice look like? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot that could be said. When I, <laughs> when I wrote the book, um, part of what I was coming up against was the realization that settler society has continued to benefit from Dakota genocide, from Dakota dispossession, generation after generation. And uh, today, I think Minnesotans would prefer to think that uh, like it's a done deal mm -hmm. and that we should just um, get on with the program. We should um, become good Americans and we should forget the past. We should live uh, with peace and love and kindness in our hearts, um, accepting the status quo and uh, looking to the future that is a vision of what Americans think is a positive future. And, you know, from my perspective, so much damage had, has been done, uh, not just to our people, to Dakota people and the loss of our homeland, but also um, terrible destruction of the land. It's hard to imagine a society that could have wrought more devastation than Americans um, wielded upon Dakota people in our homeland. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to uh, not just not create a blueprint for a program, but to present some different ideas around some some different themes that could be pursued uh, if someone was serious about justice. And part of what prompted me to to write the book was that in conversations with settlers, even even settlers who perceive themselves themselves as allies to Dakota people, as anti-racist workers, social justice workers, that kind of thing, the magnitude of the harms is so great that they end up feeling powerless. What do we do? Mm -hmm. What can be done? Well, you know, that was all in the past. I'm not responsible for it. Um, that my ancestors might have been involved in some in some form, but uh, I'm not personally 
responsible. The reality is that if you're a beneficiary of those things of injustice, then you do have an obligation to make things right. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it's like you, know, you can't steal something and then say, oh, well, that was in the past, so it doesn't matter that I still have these stolen goods. Um, that's an ongoing issue. And, uh, and I wanted to provide some uh, possibilities, some uh, avenues that people could pursue uh, towards justice uh, mm. without being immobilized by, um, you know, this this overwhelming um, problem or guilt, I think, that accompanies yeah. that. I wanted some concrete solutions. These are things that can be done. Yeah. So that's what the book was about. Yeah. Well, it's such a gift. Um, I mean, you did the thing that we shouldn't have to ask Native people to do to solve their own problem that white people have Yeah, well, and that was part of it, too, is that I, um, in that area, you know, I mean, I, or in that time, I had, um, I was still an academic, I was still, had been in university life and did a lot of public speaking, and what I found was that it was exhausting engaging in conversation after conversation with white people about these things because um, it's a, uh, I would leave presentations, um, it was mutual. I, I, I would upset many of the audience members and then I would leave upset and it just took a lot from me and I thought I can't have this conversation with one person at a time. Yeah. Um, that would be, that's going to kill me. So the book was a way to address some of these issues, uh, hopefully to, to reach a broader audience um, and allow people to wrestle with some of the ideas in there individually on their own time, uh, bit mm-hmm. by bit. Mm-hmm. You have a couple different solutions that you outline in your book. There's truth-telling reparations, I guess land reparations is sort of how you frame it. I guess the third part is healing the land so that um, Native communities can take it over. Among these solutions that you've outlined, um, do you see any one as the most important? Are they like things that need to work together? Yeah, I think that they're all, uh, they all need to work together. Um, you know, the, the early stages are things that are, are necessary steps, but they're, they're baby steps. The, the truth-telling is part of that, mm-hmm. um, that you, it's going to be hard to argue for land return if people don't understand the injustices from the past and mm-hmm. speak honestly about those things and come to terms with those things. So um, I think that that's a, a necessary component of some of the, the longer-term or broader uh, ideas about justice, but uh, essential still. Mm -hmm. Can you describe uh, the chapter on reparations and the work you've done around reparations and why you feel that's essential? Yeah, you know, I, when I think about a people and a homeland, and, and many other people have said this, no one gives up their land voluntarily. No one relinquishes their homeland without a fight of some kind. And, uh, you know, for for the original people of Minnesota Mokoche to be denied our homeland today um, means that 
the the only way to rectify that is to is to restore some of the land. And you know, when I when I first started talking about the possibility of land return, and I've talked to to many groups about this, given a lot of presentations. And when I say that the original people of Minnesota Makoche have about twelve thousandths of one percent of our original land base, point zero one two percent, no one at least says to my face, that's enough. That's more than you deserve. No one says that. Mm-hmm. Um, that that everyone's, I think, common sense about what is just uh, would require a greater land base than 12 thousandths of 1% um, of our original homeland within the borders of Minnesota. So uh, the question is how much and, and how do we go about that? In some ways it took seen other examples with other indigenous populations to realize that as Dakota people, you know, we don't deserve those things. And, you know, I, um, I think that, that for me, one of the, the wake-up calls or, or part of my transformation or growth or understanding came through the Dakota commemorative marches that we started in 2002. And the Dakota commemorative marches were designed to retrace the route our ancestors were forced marched in 1862, in November of that year, over seven days, about 150 miles. And uh, in 2002, it was the 140th commemoration of the 1862 war, and we had been thinking about the consequences of that and realized that as Dakota people, we had never uh, collectively and publicly honored and remembered the primarily women and children who were on that forced march. And so this was a way to um, to honor those women and children um, and to honor that history and that experience. But as we were marching, as we were on this walk, um, walking over 20 miles a day on most of those days and, and through sections of our Minnesota homeland, uh, going through these white towns along the way. One of the painful aspects of that is that we were treated like and felt like trespassers within our homeland. Mm-hmm. That, and in fact, it was very, it was very visual. I mean, at times because as we were going, uh, walking down these roads and on all these property signs, we'd see no trespassing, no trespassing, no trespassing. Mm-hmm. And you see that colonial perversion of reality. It's a flip of reality um, where uh, the Dakota people, the original people of the land, became the trespassers to on the lands of, of white occupiers, of, of white colonizers, white settlers who um, were benefiting from our dispossession. Mm-hmm. And that um, seeing that that contrast or feeling that um, and the anger and not just anger the rage that built up as a consequence of that um, I struggled with that for a number of years how do you um, how do you address that how do you make that right and you know the other part of that is that you know Minnesota was pretty systematic about 
um, its policies of genocide and ethnic cleansing against Dakota people. And this is, uh, from my perspective, those facts are indisputable. When you have bounties placed on scalps, when you have a removal order uh, requiring our people by law to be um, exiled from the <clears throat> state, it can't get any more clear. Um, yeah. And uh, all the calls for extermination. So as Dakota people, uh, we in our you know thousands of years of history to my knowledge had never experienced such tragedy such harm before then and so um as a as a people as as families as individuals we were struggling with you know how do you deal with that level or that magnitude of historical grief that there are no um ceremonies designated for genocide healing <laughs> so mm. Mm. uh i from my perspective, where I felt the most empowered, where I felt the most excited, where I felt the most relieved from that burden of pain or rage was when I was working towards justice and thinking about that, that that's where the empowerment comes from. That's where the healing comes from. So uh, land reparations is really uh, key to that. Um, if you steal someone's homeland it's the only common sense solution it's the the only thing that makes sense is to return that land mm -hmm. so you know i i'm hoping that um you know that that process the idea of land return my hope with the book was that that would be normalized in people's mind that the first time people hear it they might be shocked what do you mean give back the land mm -hmm. Yeah. We own this. This is ours. Mm -hmm. And the hundredth time they hear it, maybe it's not so shocking. By the time they hear it a thousand times, oh yeah, you know that's a that's one of the possibilities. Yeah. So um, that's what I think the power of putting things down on paper, putting it in writing, uh, speaking about it, talking about it regularly, um, using the appropriate terminology, you know, genocide, ethnic cleansing, land theft, calling things what they are is part of that normalization process. And I think that that too is an essential step in um, on that pathway to justice. Mm -hmm. We're all hurt by a system that promotes structural inequality and refuses to acknowledge genocide, like you said. Um, and I, yeah, I just wonder how that question resonates with you. Um, how are we as a society hurt? How do you feel personally like that question connects? You know, I, I think, all you have to do is look around at the craziness of society that, that I mean, Americans are sick people. Um, they're not well emotionally, physically, spiritually. Um, and it's, I think it's because of the history. I think it's because of the actions. I think it's the way people live. Um, I think it's the destruction of everything they touch. Um, all of those contribute to uh, an unhealthy way of being an unhealthy society and Americans are the epitome of that. Um, I think that a society or a culture that 
destroys the land base it needs to survive, that toxifies the water it needs to survive, is insane. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are, uh, there are a couple <laughs> of things, or lots of things at play, lots of uh, ideas at work, uh, lots of myths that, that underlie this society that are particularly harmful, particularly damaging. Um, you know, obviously capitalism is a problem. Uh, if you have a system um, based on a paradigm of infinite growth, that cannot be sustained. That's inherently unsustainable. It's inherently damaging. Um, and it's, a, it's about short-term goals. I mean, really limited vision um, and uh, a narrowing of vision that is um, childlike, uh, it's, it, it's, it's a real problem. But I think accompanying that, um, one of the big myths is the myth of progress, that Americans and I think entire um, Western society has this notion of progress built in. And if you believe in progress, you believe that things are going to get better and better, that there's going to be something called advancement, but advancement towards what? Towards more luxury, more exploitation, more destruction, more global warming, more climate chaos. I mean, really, what is, what is when, I, when I hear people talk about progress or we have to advance, or I think, what are you advancing towards? Is it towards uh, some kind of Star Wars future where we're out in the universe? taking over someone else's planet and destroying that as well. I mean, I, I don't know when it stops, or, but there's, um, it's the opposite of contentment. It's the opposite of happiness because that can never be satisfied. It can never be sated. What is, what is the mindset to counter that capitalist greed, infinite growth? You know, um, I think indigenous societies around the world offer the only worldview, the only framework that is viable, that's sustainable, that's long-lasting. Um, it's indigenous people who have been able to live on the same land base for thousands of years without destroying it. So you hear, especially in a lot of environmental organizations, uh, terms like sustainable development uh, mm. thrown around. Um, sustainability in that context is still something that's very short-sighted. You know, we're talking, you know, 20 years, maybe, maybe 50 years. Um, but um, the kind of mindset that allows a people to live in one place over thousands of years is the kind of long-term vision that we need. And of course, indigenous societies are rooted in in many common values. Um, one is a is a belief that everything um, has a spirit, everything is alive, everything is worthy of respect in its own right, um, not for our purposes of exploitation. Um, and when you look at all of creation as relatives. Um, you can't exploit in the same way. <laughs> so uh, part of it is about living those values, uh, trying, to, uh, trying to live those ideals, I guess. And uh, that's where Western society offers nothing. 
Yeah. There is there is nothing underlying Western society that's sustainable over the long term. Mm-hmm. That's why we need to get rid of it and all of its systems and institutions and structures. Mm-hmm. They cannot coexist with a finite planet, period. Have you done much thinking about food systems, sustainability? Well, I've thought a lot about it in terms of indigenous people and specifically Dakota people in, in Minnesota. Um, I uh, Something I really struggle with, really, really wrestle with, um, and am really angry about. Um, I look at my home community of Upper Sioux, and we have, you know, roughly about 2,000 acres of land uh, within our reservation, which isn't enough to pro- even provide housing for all of our community members. Um, and what I often say is that if our people had to rely on the food that's either produced on our reservation or available uh, within the boundaries of our reservation, we would starve within a matter of days. And over the long term, we would become very sick because the Minnesota River that runs through our reservation is toxic. The fish are toxic. The turtles are toxic. The plants are toxic. Mm. Um, And that is absolutely heartbreaking. And so when I say that that it's hard to imagine a society or a way of life that would be more destructive than Americans have been within Dakota homeland. I mean it. A nuclear bomb would be less destructive than what Americans have done to our homeland. So in Minnesota, 90% of the wetlands have been destroyed. 98% of the big woods of southern Minnesota are gone. 98% of Minnesota's white pines are gone. 99% of the prairies are gone. And when will Minnesotans say that's too much? Apparently not yet, because Mm -hmm. everything is still in place. So for Dakota people who've experienced genocide, who've experienced land theft, dispossession, experienced exile, when we think about food within our homeland, um, even, even those foods that are typically characterized as indigenous are associated with the Ojibwe. Wild rice, maple syrup, sugar bush camps. Um, as Dakota people, we don't have access to our old ricing grounds anymore. Mm-hmm. The ricing grounds that we did have in southern Minnesota are no longer um, viable. Or I, again, the water is all so toxic. Some of the most polluted waters in mm-hmm. the country. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and so <clears throat> in terms of food, we've been devastated. And, and that's one of the, the reasons why I call for justice as well, because it's, uh, it's incredibly unjust. And in fact, in my mind, it's just another form of modern-day genocide when the original people of the land don't have access to food. What do you say to the person who tells you, what are you talking about? There are farms everywhere. I'm driving through. Farmland. There's food everywhere. We produce more food than, you know, any other part of the country. You know, what do do you say? I would say more food would be produced if they stopped monocrop industrial agriculture. 
um, that the food sources that were there, and there was an abundance of food sources and all the different ecosystems within our homeland prior to colonization, um, and if those were intact, there would be an abundance of food. But it's the particular system to grow, you know, corn, soybeans. I mean, that's the problem. That's, the, you know, they're responsible for the destruction of those other food sources in favor of these food sources that are used as, you know, mostly additives. It's not like people are eating corn around the world. Um, they're eating corn products, corn byproducts, um, and, um, and also contributing to poor health uh, around the world. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, they're destroying the topsoil, they're draining the water, changing, changing the hydrology um, in whole regions of our homeland um, when we're, we live in a time that is particularly uncertain um, with climate change and global warming where we should be trying to keep as much of the water in the land as possible. And farmers around here are draining it all away so that they can plant more. Mm -hmm. So um, in your book, you see it as white people's responsibility, maybe the state of Minnesota's responsibility to repair the land, to get it into shape so that it can be turned back to its original owners. Um, Can you describe what that process might look like? You know, there are some aspects where I think that that's necessary. And I think about, um, for example, nuclear power and nuclear production, nuclear storage, where um, I think it would be another crime to hoist the responsibility for managing or dealing with those toxins um, on Dakota people, on Mm -hmm. original people, that that that's outrageous. But with most of the harms that have been done, um, and my husband and I have talked about this a lot, that, that the land would heal itself, the water would heal itself if it were just left alone and people would stop adding toxins, stop harming it, um, that um, the earth has the capacity to heal herself, and that will happen. Um, All people have to do is stop. But it's because people are invested in maintaining industrial civilization that um, they continue on. And Mm -hmm. that that seems like too big a sacrifice for them um, to to just stop, Mm -hmm. just stop harming. And so as you're looking at doing some edits for the fourth reprint. What are some of the things you're thinking about adding? (laughs) Um, I'll probably do a little bit about the nonprofit that I've been um, working with and and in terms of land, uh, a little bit of background about that. So after the book came out in 2008, it was um, in 2009, I was meeting with a group of white solidarity activists in the Twin Cities area and they were asking questions about the book and you know about about land and about how to how to go about returning land or getting land back to Dakota people and you know they said have you ever thought about buying back land 
said, well, <laughs> you know, yeah. In fact, um, all of our reservation communities in Minnesota have gone through that process of purchasing land. Um, uh, but I was interested in justice. And I said, from a justice perspective, when we have to buy back the land that was stolen from us in the first place, that certainly does not represent justice in, in my book. And I think in, I, most people get that. Um, and I, and I said, in fact, it only adds to the long list of harms that have already been done. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so they said, well, what if, um, what if we raised money to buy back land for Dakota people? And I said, that would work. Um, that works. So they got to work. And you know that group of solidarity activists, was, was, they were mostly anarchists without a lot of means, financial means. Um, but they organized the first event, which they called an evening of reparations. And that was held, I think it was December of 2009. And so it was a, a fundraising dinner and silent auction. And they did all the work. They got the items um, donated to the, would be auctioned off. They did the cooking. You know, they, they ran the event that night. And people came and they contributed. They donated. And I think it was a couple thousand dollars that they turned over to the nonprofit I had at that time, Oyatanipikte, and um, that was the start of a land project. And since then, that um, land project has, has its own 501c3 status now, and it's called Makoche Ikikchupi, uh, which we translate as land recovery. And um, we've been collecting donations since 2009 uh, for that purpose, and the idea is that we will buy back even small parcels of land, land that uh, would allow at least some of our people um, to live on, come home from exile, um, and that they would be based in uh, some idea of sustainable community. So mm -hmm. this is land that I'm um, not interested in building casinos or, or uh, engaging in um, other forms of uh, kind of economic development, mm -hmm. um, but in living as Dakota people. So reviving uh, traditional practices, ways of, of living, ways of eating, ways of praying, um, ways of teaching our children, uh, all of those things. And um, so right now it's still in that visioning stage, although uh, we have over 140,000 in that account now. Mm. And uh, I'm actually looking at some land um, in near Lower Sioux right now um, as one potential possibility for our first land purchase. Mm -hmm. So that, from my perspective, was, was one way that settlers uh, who, who are beneficiaries of genocide and ethnic cleansing can contribute in a concrete way a tangible way to help Dakota people recover land. Are there examples of that happening in other parts of the world, country? There are. Um, I had first heard about, and I, I write about some of this in, in What Does Justice Look Like? Um, I wrote about Tom Porter's community, uh, Mohawk community out in New York, mm -hmm. um, and they That's actually got that, that land base yep. from uh, an anonymous donor um, mm -hmm help them purchase that land um, and there was an example up in British Columbia um, in Victoria where I taught for 
a few years in the Indigenous Governance Program there, um, they had been working with a couple um, uh, by the name of Cummings, and they had decided to uh, return their land and their house to um, the Indigenous people of the island there uh, for uh, whatever purposes. Um, and there were, you know, some issues around that. It wasn't, um, and to my knowledge, that, you know, one of the um, the woman, Marion Cummings, is still living, and so when upon her death, that land would be turned over to, I think they called it the Sacred Land Project. So those were the first couple examples that I knew about and, and wrote about, and what does justice look like? Um, but just about a year ago, I was out in Washington State, and um, I was invited to speak there in the Seattle community, and they um, they were really working. It was a church community out there um, that was interested in working towards justice issues um, that dealt with you know some of these historical harms with local indigenous populations. And they said, "Have you are you familiar with the uh, Duwamish campaign for back rent?" I said, "No, I'm not." Mm. So you can Google it. Um, they've got a website, and <clears throat> they are accepting donations from. Seattleites uh, for back rent, um, and they're using that to help support their tribal operations now. Mm. And I think it had just started maybe six months before then, you know, maybe in 20, uh, what would that be, 2017, something like that. And theirs had taken off. They were very good at kind of promoting it or advertising it. They've got t-shirts and mugs and, and um, uh, you know, an active website. So I think that, that the idea is one that resonates with people, yeah. it makes sense, and it doesn't require... It's not any sacrifice. Yeah, and it doesn't require converting the masses to a way of thinking, you mm-hmm. know, and I think that that's one of the overwhelming aspects, is that the, are the majority of settlers ever going to care um, yes. <laughs> about justice issues? Maybe not. Um, are the all the legislators or politicians um, ever going to care about these issues? Maybe not, although there is some movement in that recently. So, you know, we'll see what happens. I'd like to think that we'd all like to think that times are changing, um, that things are getting better to some degree, but I'm not so sure. I, I, I have my moments. But aside from all of that... Um, it doesn't require a government response. It doesn't require, um, you know, uh, converting the masses. It's something that individuals can engage as an act of reparative justice. Part of what I've wrestled with or tried to come to terms with is that, you know, our, our people lived according to the seasons. We migrated from place to place when things went really around food sources, um, whether it was following the buffalo or going to wild ricing camps or sugar mm-hmm. bush camps or uh, places to hunt or fish or uh, places to have our summer planting villages. And that kind of um, mobility allowed us to, to live really healthy lives. And today we're sedentary. Um, we're confined to reservations if we go elsewhere, we either have to get a permit or we're, you know, if we're trespassing on someone's land, we would be threatened with arrest or citation or, um, you know, jail time if we were persistent. And 
so that access to food, which should be a human right, it should be our right, um, is criminalized in this society or in this system. And um, so when we do have a confined land base where we don't have that free access to, to go from place to place, um, it requires us, or if we want if we want to work towards being self-sustaining where we can provide our own food, um, we're going to have to kind of recreate those environments mm-hmm. and really essentially those permaculture is the language of today, yeah. um, environments where food is plentiful. Um, and that means in most areas, at least in southern Minnesota, it would mean trying to restore integrity to the land. Uh, first of all, I would try be trying to bring back diversity um, to attract the, the wildlife and, mm-hmm. and uh, the food sources that our people relied on. It would require a lot of planting. Um, and care for those things, and and our and then the regular kind of annual gardens for the things that our people grew traditionally. We're having to live differently or think about that differently because we're in the context of being under colonial occupation. Yeah, yeah. What are Dakota foods to you? How do you connect to your um, food traditions? Yeah, I'm. You know, our our foods. We had a really varied diet, and it was, you know, pretty pretty much everything. Um, you know, the animals and plants that we encountered that were edible. Um, so, you know, it was it was um, big game like like bison or buffalo and deer and elk. I used to be in in Minnesota and and uh, uh, small game, you know, fowl and. Um, rabbits and whatever um, whatever was around fish um, and then you know a lot of uh, plants and berries and nuts and uh, roots and um, you know the and then we had gardens as well so um, you know, corn beans squash um, all of those things and and It was, in my mind, the perfect life. People were healthy. To wrap up my interview with Wazi Yatalin, I asked her to read an excerpt from her book, What Does Justice Look Like? Decolonization requires the creation of a new social order, but this would ideally be a social order in which non-Dakota would also live as liberated peoples in a system that is just to everyone, including the land and all the beings on the land. Thus, Washichu people need not fear the empowerment of Dakota people. When we are lifted up and our humanity is recognized, everyone will be lifted up. Those of us clinging to traditional Dakota values are not interested in turning the tables and claiming a position as oppressor, as colonizer, or of ruthlessly exploiting the environment for profit. All of you today are in a position to help us rehabilitate humankind, but it has to start here right here in Dakota homeland. Do you have any feelings on that passage? Have they changed at all in you know, uh, it, 11 years? It has changed. Um, I think in general I'm <clears throat> not 
as optimistic as yeah. I was, and I and I was not optimistic when I wrote that book. I was to a certain extent. I believe more firmly now than ever that indigenous ways are incompatible with industrial civilization. Any pockets of hope anywhere? Well, I think that that from a Dakota perspective, and part of us living in an earth lodge today is about figuring out how we can weather the coming changes and yeah. listening to the land, uh, doing what we need to do uh, for our part. Thank you so much for listening to this series, Farming on Stolen Land. And double thank you to my interviewees, Nora Murphy, Carly Badhartbull, and Wazi Ethelin for taking the time to share your knowledge with me. My hope is that these interviews sparked more questions than answers from you, my listeners. I know that was certainly the case for me. I intend to continue learning and sharing this knowledge as much as possible about how to achieve justice on the land and create a food system that is more equitable for all.